let's move on and we'll talk about Phoebe. The next two are going to be spicy. Okay? <laughs> I'm not even going to lie to you. Let's do it. Uh, the next two are going to be spicy. So Phoebe is listed one place in the scripture, but the stuff that's said about her is really wild. So the only place she's mentioned is Romans chapter number 16, verses 1 and 2. Now, I told you earlier, often the stories of these overlooked women are overlooked because they don't fit the mold of these other more prominent verses, yes, but also because of where they occur in the Apostle Paul's letters. So you might not know this, but basically the Apostle Paul followed a template for every single letter he wrote. They are the same. Ephesians and Romans and Philippians and Colossians and 1 Timothy, in a lot of ways, they follow the exact same thing. You can basically divide the letter in half. The first half is all theology. It is all esoteric. It's kind of like deep and heady. And then there will become a moment in the letter in which he pivots. And based on everything he just taught them theologically, now this is what they need to change. This is how they need to live, okay? So I'll give you a quick example of this. In the um, letter to the Philippian church, we have this beautiful poem at the start about how Jesus did not think that equality with God was something to be held onto, but instead he emptied himself of his divinity. He took on the form of the lowest servant so that he could serve and, and die for all, right? Okay, so we got this poem. Why does Paul write that? Is, he, is it because God's like, oh, they're gonna need this poem? The, the church 2,000 years from now. Yes. But Paul actually has a very specific thing in mind. See, there were two women at the church in Philippi that were beefing. Seriously. Their names are Euodia and Syntyche. And they were causing a lot of tension because they were fighting very publicly. These were women that if you read the, the context closely, Paul calls them my co-laborers, which is a, a term that he uses of other ministers, like gospel ministers, okay? They start fighting, and he begs them to get over it. Lay down your pride, ladies. Reconcile with one another for the sake of the church and the sake of the gospel. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. He laid down his pride. He emptied himself. He became nothing. He took on the form of a servant. That's what you ladies have to do. So you see, the first half of Paul's letters is doctrine and theology. The last half then is practice based on what we've learned, okay? All right, that's true. The letters always start with like a quick introduction, you know, to the saints at the church of Corinth or whatever, right? And then at the end, Paul is always like, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. He's like, Hey, my buddy Aristarchus greets you. I'm going to fill you in on what John Mark is up to. Homie's been working in, you know, Corinth for a while. Uh, greet Demas. Uh, if you run across Alexander the silversmith, don't be hospitable to him because, you know, the Lord's going to judge him for what he's done to me. It's like all the, oh, and Timothy says hi. You know, it's like all this, like it's this weird. Okay. So the stories of these women actually get caught in this long list of people. Like, you know, who the heck is Aristarchus? Who is, you know, all of it, these names are not familiar. They're not famous in the scripture. And so they just kind of jumble together and they get overlooked. But if you take your time, you'll start to see that, oh, we actually learn a little bit about these guys in the book of Acts over here or in this letter over here. And you can start to pick up their story and like you, you can learn a lot from them. They're actually really rich and the women in particular are that way. So a lot of times Phoebe and Junia, who we'll talk about in a moment, they get overlooked 
simply because they occur at the end of the letter when we're kind of like rushing to get past it and get on to the next book, which is unfortunate. Okay, yeah, yeah, Romans 16. Romans 16, uh, verses 1 to 2. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He's closing out his letter to the Roman church. And he says, I commend to you, that is, I, I, I offer to you with my enthusiastic support. I commend to you my sister Phoebe, or our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church in Sencrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people, to give her any help she may need for you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Okay? There is a lot to unpack in this, okay? So let's start here with the fact that Phoebe is called a deacon in the church of Sancria. Now, you may be familiar with what a deacon is. If you're, like, connect might be kind of your first exposure to church or church at length. Maybe you're not totally familiar with what a deacon is. So a deacon is an office of the New Testament. It's similar to a pastor or an elder. Um, and we find deacons established in Acts chapter number six. So in Acts chapter number six, the church is exploding in growth. And the apostles are trying to like preach messages and teach the word and evangelize people. But because the church is exploding, they're coming across so many poor people and widows who need somebody to help them in the church. They have physical needs that need to be met. Um, and, and so they start coming to the church saying, basically, can you make sure we have food? Can you help us pay our rent? You know, it's like benevolence ministry, essentially. And the, the apostles actually say in Acts chapter number six, it's kind of put bluntly, they're like, we shouldn't be waiting tables. We should be focusing on the ministry of the word. Not because they're above waiting tables, but simply because their calling was to go and to preach the word. So what they do is they select seven men from the church, men of good report, men full of the Holy Spirit, and they put them in charge of the service to the widows and to the other poor in the community. So they're started in Acts chapter number six. And then if you go to 1 Timothy chapter number three, you read there is actually a list of qualifications if somebody wants to be a deacon. In that same passage, there's a list of qualifications if somebody wants to be a pastor. There's one for if somebody wants to be a deacon, okay? Now here's what's really interesting to me. Um, the idea that women can be pastors is controversial in our day. And while I don't agree that it's prohibited, I can understand maybe why it's controversial. The idea that women can be deacons, it shouldn't be controversial at all. Like this is really, really clearly obvious from the New Testament and from church history. Yeah. Okay. So um, 1 Timothy chapter number three, verse 11 we read the qualifications for female deacons. Female deacons. Now, the reason that this often gets obscured is that complementarians would say in 1 Timothy 3.11, when Paul says, likewise the women should be, and he gives a list of qualifications, he wasn't talking about female deacons. He was talking about the wives of deacons. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, so if there's a deacon, he's got to be all these things, and her wife needs to be these things too. Okay, that is not the way anybody in the New Testament understood his writing there. And it's not the way anybody in the early church did, okay? Everybody knew 
with an, with absolute certainty that he was saying, if a woman wants to be a deacon, here are the qualifications she needs to meet. Everybody would have understood that. Um, I know that because A, Phoebe is called a deacon here. She's very She very clearly holds the office, okay? But not only that, the early church fathers very consistently uh, spoke positively about females occupying the office of deacon. Okay, so um, Origen, John Chrysostom, um, there are like several writings from the like third and fourth century, which were like church manuals that were distributed all over the world at the time. And it was like, um, like, this is how you do a church service and this is how you marry somebody according to Christian, Christian rights and things like that. And in um, a couple of, so the apostolic constitutions and what we call the didascalia apostolorum, which is a great name. It's like you're casting a Harry Potter spell there. Um, anyway, in both of those things, there are ordination services for female deacons. Okay. So like, the early church was like literally ordaining women to serve in this office. And then there's this really fascinating story um, that comes from outside of church history. So uh, you may know that within about a um, hundred years of the death of Christ, Christianity was made illegal, okay? Because Christians proclaimed Jesus is Lord. And the Romans had to proclaim, according to the imperial cult, Caesar is Lord. And to say anybody else is Lord was tantamount to treason. So the Romans actually outlawed Christianity. It was driven underground. This is like when Christians were fed to the lions in the Colosseum and they were lit up as torches and things like that. Like it's a, it's a dark part of history, all right? There's this fascinating story during that time where a governor named Pliny is trying to, um, basically he's trying to find out where the secret house churches are meeting, Okay. He's trying to figure out where the house churches are at. And so he writes a letter to his superior back in Rome about how he arrested two female deacons and tortured them to discover where the churches were meeting. He knew they were deacons. He called them deacons. You know what I'm saying? So like even outside of the church, there's testimony that women were, uh, they were occupying this very important office. Now, the word deacon simply means servant. It is the Greek word for servant. And so complementarians will say uh, the Phoebe here in this passage, Paul is merely saying she's a servant of the church in Sencrea, right? And when you say it that way, it's kind of like, well, yeah, isn't everybody a servant of the church? Like she shows up and she's, they're portable. And so like she puts out all the chairs and she's a good servant of the church. But the thing is, when Paul calls her a deacon, and then he ties it to a specific congregation. The way that he does that, it kind of forms, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Not a template, but it, it forms a pattern in which he is not just communicating their role in the church, but their official capacity, if that makes sense. Okay. The only reason to interpret this merely as a servant instead of a deacon is a previously held belief that women could not be deacons. Does that make sense? Because in other places, when men are called the diakonos or the diakonon, when they're when that word is used for them, then it's like, oh, they're deacons, of course. Obviously, they're deacons here, okay? So I think we owe Phoebe that same respect. Okay, so first thing we learn about her is that she occupied the office of deacon. Now, what's even more interesting here is that Paul's language about her in verses 1 to 2, I want you to notice he says to her, I commend her to you, okay? Why would he commend her to them 
if she's like some chick living on the other side of the empire? Like, I don't, what's the point in that, right? Then he says there, he says, I ask you to receive her in the Lord uh, in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help. So what we understand from this is that Phoebe was actually being sent from where the Apostle Paul was. My voice just cracked there. That was fun. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'm becoming a man. Um, the Apostle. She's being, she's being sent from where the Apostle Paul was to the church in Rome. Why? We actually know the answer. Because the language that Paul uses here, I commend to you our sister Phoebe in the Lord. Give her all the help she needs. This is the exact same language that Paul uses in every other one of his epistles to describe the person that is carrying the letter to the church that it is addressed to. Okay, so today, if we want to send a letter to one another, we write it out, put it in an envelope, slap a stamp on it. Canada Post takes it from my house to your house, right? That's how it gets there. There was no Canada Post back then. There was no Pony Express. If a letter needed to get from one place to another, somebody had to carry it. And so every one of the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament were written by him in one city, and then he gave it to somebody he trusted, and they carried the letter by hand, often on a journey that would have taken them weeks to cross the, the Mediterranean Sea or the empire, and they would have gone and they would have delivered it. So we know this. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 8, verses 16 to 24, you find out that Titus delivered the letter to the 1 Corinthians. Go read that passage, and you're going to see that it's the exact same language. Same thing, okay? Uh, we read that Tychicus delivered the letter to the Ephesians. Epaphroditus delivered the letter to the Philippians. Onesimus delivered the letter to Philemon. And so Phoebe becomes the courier that Paul entrusts to take the letter uh, from where he is, Corinth, to its destination in Rome. Now, um, in ancient times, okay, uh, imagine you got a letter from the Apostle Paul. He, he planted your church then he was like, peace out, I'm going to plant other churches. And you guys are trying to figure it out. There's no manual. He, your, your leader's gone. So you're like doing your best, but it's not easy. You got a million questions. He hears you have a million questions. So he writes you a letter to clarify some of that, okay? You get it, but you can't ask him questions about the stuff he just wrote because he's literally on the other side of the empire. So in ancient times, Courier's job was to go and to not simply drop off the letter and then go away. They would do a couple of things. They would actually be the ones to read the letter to the people that it was written to. It would be like, I don't want to say a performance, but it would be like a, you understand the entire book of Hebrews is just one long sermon. Like it is a long sermon, bro. I don't know how long that preacher preached that day, but it was a long time. Okay. Um, it's kind of the same thing. The Romans would have heard this letter on Sunday morning. She would have gotten up, the courier would have gotten up and would have read it. Then the courier's job was to answer questions or to provide additional context for what was going on. What was Paul thinking when he wrote this line? Why, why did he write this? Did he understand that we were having this problem or, or whatever? This is all well attested in church history, in the Bible, and outside of the Bible. So go to Acts chapter number 15. And what you find out is um, there's, this, um, there's this interesting kind of moment in church history. Oh, dude, I got to hurry. Okay. Um, 
Acts chapter number 15, we have what we call the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council was a decision by the early church that said, if you are a Gentile and you want to become a Christian, you don't have to become a Jew first, which basically means you don't have to be circumcised. But anyway, um, you don't have to keep the Old Testament law. And so when the church at Jerusalem made that decision, they needed, like the apostles, like James and Peter made this decision. When they made that decision, they needed to get that information out to all the other churches that were spreading across the empire so that they were teaching proper doctrine. So they wrote letters. They said, oh, there's this really good guy named Barnabas. And there's some other guys here. They list them out in Acts chapter number 15. And we're going to give them the letter. They're going to go to the church at Antioch. They're going to tell them, hey, we had this big church council, business meeting, debate, fight. This is where we settled. Here's a letter from the apostles at the church in Jerusalem telling you the, the, the outcome. And then the scripture actually says they explain to them the additional details to the letter. This is exactly what couriers did. The apostle Paul did the same thing in Acts chapter number 16. You go there in verse four. He does the same thing. He goes on and he preaches or he expounds on, I should say, what the contents of the letter from the Jerusalem council actually are. So the courier, in this case, it's Phoebe, a woman, her job was to sit in front of the church and to explain the meaning of the words that are written in there. Have you guys ever read Romans? Romans is the densest mm -hmm. book in the New Testament. Theologically, it is the most densest. I mean, it's deep. It's all about salvation. The entire book is about salvation, but it's like, what do we do with it? What's God doing with Israel? And how do Gentiles fit in? And like, is it my choice or is it God's choice? And, you know, what if I used to be a pagan? You know, how does that fit? Like, it's, it's dense, y'all. And Phoebe, a woman was the one who was responsible for expounding and communicating and even reading and preaching Amazing. that letter to the church the first time. So good. Like the most theological part of the New Testament, arguably anyway, was first proclaimed by a woman. That's so interesting. I think it's really, really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Okay, one more quick thing about Phoebe and then we'll move on. We notice here at the end that Paul says she's been the benefactor of many people including me. Um, this word is translated a little bit differently in, in various translations. So in some translations, it says she's been a helper to many, so help her. Um, it's a little play on words there in English. Um, she's called a patroness or a patron of Paul's ministry. Here she's called a benefactor, okay? Um, we kind of read this with like a, a Western 21st century capitalist mindset. And we think, oh, a benefactor is somebody who like, they're wealthy, they have deep pockets, and so they pay. Like, they're the ones who pay for the mayor's campaign, or they're the ones who pay for the new library to be built. They're a benefactor, right? And there is a sense, yes, in which ancient benefactors were people of deep resources, and they funded things. Do you realize the Bible actually specifically tells us that women were the benefactors, the ones who funded Jesus' ministry? The gospel tells us that. It never says men funded his ministry. It does say women funded his ministry, but hey, whatever. Um, Phoebe, along with many other women, are called the benefactors of the church. And what I want you to recognize is that this benefactor title, it is, it's not merely uh, a description. It's not merely um, an adjective. It is actually a title that's given. There were people 
who were called the benefactors in the early church or of the early church. There are several, and we're going to point out a few of them later. Um, without getting too far into their responsibilities, just know that it was more than opening your pocketbook and providing some cash. In fact, so the, the word here for benefactor is just the female version of the male benefactor. Does that make sense? You know how like prophetess is just the female version of prophet. So the word that Paul uses here is just the female version of benefactor. The word benefactor in Greek literally means guardian, protector, or provider. So we take that third definition, the provider. You're the provider. You provide the cash. Thanks, sugar mama. Right? We, 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 we latch onto that, but there's, there are a lot of other meanings. And I don't know if you realize this or not. When you go to the, def, uh, to the dictionary, the first definition that's provided in a word is the most common. And then it goes in descending order to least common after that. So like if we go to the dictionary for Greek words and the first word that's used to translate this, this phrase, um, it's uh, protostasis, I believe, protostasis, I can't remember. Anyway, um, is guardian, then maybe we should think about Phoebe in terms of being some sort of guardian for the church. I don't know what that is. I mean, she's not like an Amazon with a sword and stuff like that, but I don't know. It's interesting. Last name I want to talk about is um, another pairing of people. Um, the, the, the last one is Junia and Andronicus. Junia and Andronicus. And we read about them in uh, also the same passage. So Romans 16, 7, um, we read about Junia and Andronicus. So let's start with the names for just a moment here, okay? Um, if I said to you, Christopher and Michelle came over to our house last night, what would you assume about the gender of the two people that came to our house last night? Go ahead. It's a male and a female, right? Which one was male? And with, that means Michelle is female, right? Now, we know that. I know in our world you can't be certain. But anyway, <laughs> we know that because Christopher is a very common male name in 2022 in Canada, and Michelle is a very well-known female name in our culture, okay? If we were to fast forward 2,000 years in the future in Canada, people may not be familiar with the name Christopher and Michelle at all. And so if they somehow stumbled across a text message that I wrote that said, Christopher and Michelle came over to our house last night, they might be like, I don't know who these people were. Were they both men? Was it a mix? Was it both female? Who even knows, okay? It's kind of that same way with Junia and Andronicus. For us in 2022, those are not, we, we don't, we can't glean any extra data from that because they're not common names. However, if you are familiar with the culture in which these names occurred, you can learn a lot. So Andronicus was a very, very common male name. I told you before, Aquila doesn't really sound like a guy's name. Andronicus sounds like a guy's name. I'm not even going to lie. I think that one's pretty solid. It's a good name for a dog, too. Anyway. <laughs> Junia was a very, very common female name in the first century Greek world. So when the Apostle Paul says here, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. Whether or not everybody in the Roman church knew, like, like oh, I know Andronicus, yeah. I know Junia, we used to, you know, go to yoga together, whatever. Like, even if they didn't know exactly who they were, just seeing those names, they would have been like, oh, a man and a woman, 
Okay, so we have a male and a female, Andronicus and Junia here. All right, why, um, let's see here. Oh, okay, this is important, okay? The, the fact that Junia is a female name, Andronicus is a male name, and this is well established, is important because in about a quarter of the modern Bible translations, Junia is not Junia. Instead, Junia is translated as a masculine version of the name, by adding an S to it. So in certain translations, like the RSV, the ASV, the Amplified Bible, the NASB, and some others, if you go read this verse, it'll say, greet Andronicus and Junius, okay? In doing that, in adding the S to it, the translators have actually changed the gender of the name, okay? Um, so it's very similar to Daniel and Danielle. Yeah, you change the ending, you change the gender. Similar here, okay? The Greek, the original letter that Paul wrote says Andronicus, which is a male name, and Junia, which is a female name. But in many, a quarter or so of Bible translations today, it's changed to an S. We're going to talk about why in a moment, but let me tell you first, there's a problem with that, okay? And the problem with it is that although the adding an S to the name Junia, it conforms to Greek grammar, okay? It's a proper way to create a masculine name. The masculine name Junius literally doesn't exist. There's no records in any literature or history in the world. Period. End of story. There is no record in the Bible, no record in Greek history outside of the Bible of any guy ever being named Junius. It just doesn't exist. So it would be the equivalent of taking the name Amber, which we all understand very obviously as a feminine name, adding a T to it and saying, it's Ambert. It's a boy's name. Ambert. Please don't name also, your son Amber. I, I don't know. I kind of like it. Amber. <laughs> okay. Now, you might hear Ambert, and you're like, I, I guess it kind of sounds like a masculine name because Bert is a masculine name. We don't use it very often, but it's a guy's name, right? So Ambert, I guess you could argue that that is a masculine name, but it's also a nonsense name. Nobody is named Ambert. It's, it's I don't know, maybe. Uh, doubtful. Okay. This is exactly what we see here with the name Junia, okay? It is, it is unfortunately translated in about a quarter of our modern Bibles as a masculine name instead of a female name. Why? Why would anybody feel the need to say, I bet in the past the name was actually Junius, and somehow over history, the S accidentally got dropped. I know it must be there because clearly Paul was talking about two guys. So we're going to add the S back in so that there's no confusion. We're just going to take care of that for Christians today, okay? You can thank us later. Um, why do they do that? It's because of what the Apostle Paul says about these two people. He says about them that they are, and this is the next blank here, that they are notable apostles. That's the Greek phrase that he uses there is greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are notable apostles. Another way to translate this is they are outstanding apostles. Anybody see why this might be a problem for complementarians? Because if that translation and understanding is correct, 
Paul is calling a lady an apostle. Okay? That's obvious. Like, that would be pretty massive. And if you're a complementarian, then you've got to be able to understand and explain what he really meant because there's no way a woman could be a pastor. If they can't be a pastor, there's no way they could be an apostle, right? And so um, because of the way this is framed and phrased, the name Junia is translated. It's changed. It is straight up changed, you guys, in, in these very poor translations to a male name so that nobody gets the idea that these, this woman is an apostle, okay? Now, you might be reading your translation or even you see the one here on the screen and you say, well, in this translation, it says they are well known to the apostles, right? Which is totally different than saying they are well-known apostles, notable apostles, outstanding apostles. If you say that this woman is well-known to the apostles, well, okay, cool. That wouldn't violate any scripture, right? That would be a safe way to translate it. The Greek doesn't say that, but at least it is in harmony with these other passages in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, okay? Um, or the more direct way to translate this is they are outstanding among the apostles. And with that translation, this is a very accurate way to render the Greek here. However, um, you can read that in two different ways. You can read that as they are outstanding in the eyes of the apostles. Among the apostles, these guys are outstanding. The apostles as a group think these guys are rock stars. Do you see that understanding of that phrase? But that's not the way Paul wrote it, and that's not the way people in the early church understood it. They understood Paul to be saying Andronicus, the man, and Junia, the female, were notable or outstanding apostles. This is like legitimately a female who is given the title apostle in scripture. Okay. Um, Can we talk a little bit about what apostle means just for a second? Yeah, totally. Yes. Because um, I've heard complementarians say, well, you don't understand this correctly. The apostles were actually the 12. Yep. Okay, so the word apostle, anybody know what it means? What's that? Overseer. Overseer. Okay, no, the, the word apostle most literally means sent one, one who is sent. So like if you think about it in terms of the 12, that makes a lot of sense. They were sent by Jesus, okay? Um, so yeah, the, the, the word most literally means sent one. Jesus sent all of his disciples out into the world with the Great Commission. So in the most broad and general sense, we are all apostles right? I'm an apostle, you're an apostle, because I have been sent by Jesus to go into the world and make disciples. But the uh, title apostle obviously is most typically used of the original 12. And if you're curious, why did Jesus only choose men for the 12? We're going to answer that question before we leave tonight. It's most commonly used for the 12. However, if you pay close attention, there are other people in the New Testament that are called apostles. So the apostle Paul is actually, he carries that title despite the fact that he's not one of the 12. There are a few other people that are also referred to as apostles and not merely in the loose, like we're all sent ones, so therefore we're all apostles, but in like a real tangible official sort of sense, um, that's the way it's used. And so um, in this passage, if you think about it, um, okay, if you, if you think about it, um, they are outstanding among the, the sent ones. Like they're outstanding among all the Christians. Like that, that phrase doesn't make sense in the context. Paul is referring to the authority that is inherent because they're present in the group, if that makes sense. Or another way to consider this is the, the Greek construction essentially says 
they are a part of the larger group to which they are uh, referred to, to here. They, that sentence did not make sense. They are, they are included in the larger group that Paul is referencing. There we go, talking. Um, they are outstanding among the group of apostles, if, if this makes sense, okay? And this is the way that the early church understood this. For 1,300 years, every single church father, every single church father talked about Junia, the female apostle. Every single church father. I, I can't say that enough. We have lots and lots and lots of examples. So we have one here that's um, on, your, um, on your notes. So one of the ch- early church fathers, very famous, fourth century church father named John Chrysostom, he wrote a sermon on Romans 16. And he writes this. So this is the late 300s. This is so early in Christian history. And he said, to be an apostle is something great. But to be outstanding among the apostles, just think what a wonderful song of praise that is. They were outstanding on the basis of their works and virtuous actions. Indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was even deemed worthy of the title apostle. So what ended up happening is that in the 1300s, the church and culture had kind of shifted and people were uncomfortable with the idea of women being apostles and that sort of thing. And so somebody decided that they were going to add a little S there and that little S was going to signify a masculine name and poof, the female apostle is no more, essentially. All right. Um, They did it, I want to believe, out of their desire to give what they believe to be the best interpretation of the scripture. But like, if I see this person in heaven, we're going to have words, okay? Because like, this is like, it's crazy to me how much one letter can change things. Yeah. And we told you last week or the week before, you guys don't need to be scared of scripture. You don't need to be scared about the translation history of scripture. 98% of all scripture and all translations agree. There are a few places where translations disagree, and it's like, yeah, I totally understand how you got there. There is the tiniest, minutest fraction of places in the Bible where it's like, yeah, we really don't know, or we really disagree on how this should be interpreted. However, none of those places are defining orthodoxy. They define second-order issues. They're important, and we should wrestle with them and figure it out, but none of them define orthodoxy here, okay? So additionally, Origen, Theodoret, Catania, uh, Ecumenius, John of Damascus, uh, Theophylact, all of these early church documents and fathers, they all recognize Junia to be a female who was notable as an apostle. Okay, so let's get to the question that I teased. Oh, you want to go? But, yeah, sure. I just want to speak into the translation just for a second. Um, so I do believe that this is where we see outside church culture, like secularism, that has influenced the church as well. So um, some of, not all of these translations that you see uh, change and add the S or whatever, um, some of them that were translated at that time were in heightened times of feminism. Mm -hmm. So in society, in culture, in the world, the church was combating feminism. Mm -hmm. And to do that, they needed scripture that also stuck to the man. Women are not supposed to teach and preach. And, And so... I, that can't be said by all of these translations, but a lot of them, mm-hmm. it is true. And so I, I'm not going to ever say 
don't read this translation, only read that translation. For me personally, like I try and read all of them and I go through and I sit through it and I'm reading the entire, like I've read the KJV, I've read the NIV, I've read the NLT, I've read the ESV, ESV yeah. and currently I'm reading the um, NRSD, which was the, the first one before the ESV and the ESV was taken from that and translated to be more for the men than the women. Complementary. Thank sure. you. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And so um, I encourage people to just dive in and, and read the translation in its fullest and then move on. And I've read the message, which is just a paraphrase, right. like, and then just read that one and then move on and then read the other one. You don't have to stick to one translation. Mm -hmm. You yeah. don't. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I teased the question a moment ago. Why did the Apostle Paul, I mean, why did the Apostle Paul, okay, nah, back up here. Why did Jesus <laughs> choose 12 apostles and, that were all men, right? And this is often a complementarian argument. It's like, well, when Jesus had the chance to choose the leaders for his church, he went all male. And there's a lot that can be said. I can do an hour-long talk on this pretty easily. I'm not going to. Um, here's what you need to know. The, the reason Jesus chose 12 men instead of 13 men or 9 men or 20 men is, anybody know? 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 apostles were meant to correspond with the 12 tribes of Israel. We know this because you go to the book of Revelation, we get a picture of heaven, and the Bible speaks about 24 thrones that surround the throne of God. And on the 24 thrones are elders who cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus. Why 24? Because there were 12 represented in the Old Testament, the sons of Israel, and then there were 12 in the New Testament who were meant to correlate or represent the, the continuation of what God had begun with Israel, and now he was extending to the rest of the world. So don't get hung up like, he only chose men. Well, he only chose, chose Jewish men. So if like we're letting Jesus dictate who leads the church based on his choices, then apparently only Jewish men should be leading the church. And I'm out. I don't, I'm not qualified because I'm a Gentile, right? So we can't take this too far. And if we see in other places that women are authorized, they're, they're put into leadership, they're given opportunities to lead and to teach and to preach and evangelize and, you know, all those different things, then I think that, like, we need to not make too much out of the fact that it was 12 apostles because there's a theological reason for that happening, not merely a physiological reason for that happening. All right, um, I'll just quickly point out there's a bunch of other people here at the end. Chloe, Lydia, Nympha, a different Mary, who was the mother of Mark. Um, these women are all also benefactors of churches, they're actually the people who hosted churches in their home. And it's not just like, oh, she's the hostess with the mostest. She lets everybody come over and hang out. Like <laughs> she was responsible for the church in a way that I don't have time to get into tonight. I mentioned Euodia and um, Syntyche, who were co-laborers. That's a phrase Paul uses for his fellow ministers in the gospel. We've talked about um, Philip and his four virgin daughters who were called prophetesses. I don't know why the Bible needs to highlight that they're virgins, but it does. And then here's a really weird one, and I'm only going to speak briefly about it. But um, you go to Revelation chapter number two. Jesus um, actually gives a vision to John, the apostle, and he says to him, hey, there are seven letters that are being written to the churches of Revelation or the seven churches of Asia Minor is what it is. But anyway, seven churches that are addressed in the first part of Revelation. And in the church of Thyatira, there is a, a warning to the woman who is leading that church. She's called the Jezebel of Thyatira, and she's leading the people into sexual immorality. 
So she's a bad girl. She's a bad leader. She's not a good leader, but she is a leader in the church. She's a leader. Now, does she have official leadership or like a title and a role and an office, or is she just influential? We don't really know, but it's very clear that she, she's exercising leadership. When the, when the angel corrects, or when Jesus tells the angel to correct the church at Thyatira, he never says, that woman shouldn't be having any leadership or influence. She's a woman, for goodness sake. He says she shouldn't be leading people to do things that I've commanded them not to do. They shouldn't be involved in sexual immorality. That is the problem with her leadership, not the fact that she was leading. Okay? Mm -hmm. So she's not a good example, That's but good. she needs to be addressed. All right. Well, I've talked too much tonight. We need to wrap it up and be done. That's great. Um, anything you want to say? No, we've gone too long. All right. Let's pray and we're out. <laughs>